Welcome to the Yukon RUF podcast. RUF at Yukon is a ministry that relies completely on the financial support of churches and individuals like you in order to serve the Yukon community. You can support RUF at Yukon by going to ruf.org slash Yukon. shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Good morning. Uh, Really good to be with you all this morning. Uh, Again, my name is Lucas Dorado, and I do college ministry at UConn, which is not too far from here. And uh, my parents were actually members of this church for a while, and so this used to be a place that we would come visit from time to time and worship with you all. So it's really good to be back. And I know you all have been going through Romans, uh, a series in Romans the last couple of months, I think. And for me, uh, it's just been a real privilege to camp out in four verses in Romans this week uh, as I prepared uh, to come this morning and be with you. Uh, So let me pray for us uh, before we begin to look at this text. Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, pray that you would... Uh, Send your spirit to apply your word to our hearts. Uh, Would you make sense of it to us this morning? And would you apply it to our hearts to make us different? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, So coming to Boston used to be kind of like a semi-regular thing for my wife and I. When my, My parents lived in Charlestown on Green Street, and we used to drive in the same way every time we would drive. We would take exit 18 off the Mass Pike, and we would drive on Memorial Drive past MIT, go up past uh, Bunker Hill Community College up into Charlestown. And every time we made that drive, I would, because we passed by these spots, I would think of one of my favorite movies, Goodwill Hunting. And I don't know if you guys are all like over that movie because you live here, but... I still like it. I watched it this week, and I thought it was still really good. And if you know that movie, uh, you know that it's about Will, played by Matt Damon. And Will is this genius, but he's a troubled genius. And he lacks direction, and he just kind of underachieves, and he hangs out with these friends that are kind of like buffoons. And uh, in that movie... uh, He's assigned, he's court-ordered to see this therapist, Robin Williams, and uh, so they develop this rapport throughout the movie, and as the movie progresses, it's also revealed that some of Will's story, Will is an orphan, he's a foster kid, and there's hints that he's been abused, and uh, Robin Williams is this great therapist, and he kind of lets it, he doesn't address the abuse for a long time, he just develops this rapport with Will, and toward the end of the movie, you know, he's looking at Will's file, and there's all these pictures, and there's all this uh, information about what Will has suffered in his life. And 
And Robin Williams' character even reveals that he, has, he knows something about that himself as a victim as well. And, and there's that great scene where he leans in and he says to Will, it's not your fault. And Will's kind of like, yeah, I know. And he says, it's not your fault. And Will says, I know. And the third time, he says, it's not your fault. Will just crumbles, right? He just melts. And what you realize as you watch that scene unfold is that Robin Williams knows from experience the stories that abused people tragically sometimes tell themselves about themselves, uh, including that maybe the abuse they suffered was their own fault. Okay, the narrative we tell ourselves is very powerful. Narrative fuels our lifestyle. It fuels how we live. Uh, What we tell ourselves about ourselves is incredibly powerful. And that's what Paul is getting at a little bit in this text. And he gets at it by addressing an anticipated objection to the gospel, which he has just unfolded in five chapters. So if you've been here, you know, like, Romans 1 through 5 is just the gospel of amazing grace. And it's, he systematically just unfurls this good news about free justification through the blood of Christ, right? It's this amazing news. You know, we needed righteousness from the outside so that we could be made right, so that we could be brought back into the presence of God. And it's been provided in Jesus Christ. But then he gets to this question. And I I just want to look at the question and the answer this morning. So the question uh, is, he's anticipating this accusation of antinomianism, this accusation that maybe you don't care at all about holiness or living the right way. And if you've read through Romans, you'd know he's always kind of anticipating questions. Paul always anticipates uh, what he thinks, especially his opponents, might be thinking. And it's really a logical question. Should we continue sinning that grace may abound? If grace will just abound all the more, then should we just continue sinning? Uh, Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher, says about this. He says, There's no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, it it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to this misunderstanding, then it is not the gospel. He goes on to say, it's the charge that formal dead Christianity, if there is such a thing, has always brought against this startling, staggering message that God justifies the ungodly. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying, if someone says, okay, you explain the gospel to me, and I think it means that Christians can do whatever they want, then you know you've at least communicated the bare content clearly, right? Because if someone were to walk away from your gospel presentation and say, like, okay, so I'm going to go be a good person, and I'm going to love people, you definitely haven't proclaimed the gospel. And I want us to see also that it's not like the, usually not like the wild and crazy sinners that ask this question, right? It's the religious people. Paul's anticipating an objection from 
religious people. When we ask this question, it's coming usually from the pr- a place of pride, right? This gospel can't be right, because if it is, then maybe all my hard work is not really getting me anything. You know, why am I working hard if that guy seems to not be, and he's getting to the same place as me? Uh, it's, the, it's what Jesus addresses in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, if you remember that one, right? The ones that they work different amounts of time, and at the end they get paid the same amount. And the religious leaders are furious. Uh, it's the story of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal sons, right? Uh, wondering, you know, what about me? How c- it's, it's always thinking about other people and c- kind of measuring them with me. Uh, Because grace is a tough pill to swallow. It's especially a tough pill to swallow if we've got a lot going for us, or we think we have a lot going for us. And so, that's the question. Does the gospel of grace mean that we can just do whatever we want? Or another way to put it is, can the gospel really produce holiness? Like, how could a message of grace produce holiness? holiness, and it's it's an extremely pertinent question for all of us. You know, if you're here and you're a Christian, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, and maybe the same sins keep coming up in your life, right? And Or maybe you think, you know, at this point in my life, maybe I would have gotten beyond, like, this thing that I've been dealing with for a long time. Am I missing something? Is there, like, a book I haven't read yet that's the key for me? Uh, Or maybe you're here exploring Christianity, and you may be wondering, you know, how could a message about Jesus really be enough? Is this message too simplistic? Okay, so that's the question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer really has two parts. So the first part is, uh, Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? I want us to think for a second about what that means. We died to sin. And a lot of people read that and they say, I have it figured out. I know what death is. Death means unresponsive to stimuli. And so what it means to die to sin is that when we become a Christian, we're now unresponsive to, we, we don't want to sin anymore. I, you know, I have no desire to sin anymore because I'm a Christian. And there's lots of problems with that. The first problem is that like later in this chapter in verse 10, Paul will actually say Jesus died to sin. And so that's problematic because if Jesus died to sin, then there, there was a time when he hadn't, and uh, there was this, you know, th- that doesn't work. Or later in Romans 7, Paul's going to detail a struggle with sin as a Christian, and that presents problems for this view. Or, and finally, it doesn't fit our experience, right? If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, then you know that the deal is not like, I became a Christian and I never wanted to sin again. And if we're told that, that creates all kinds of distrust in the word, and it creates bitterness, uh, it creates burnout. But that verse 10, uh, in the next part of this chapter, is really helpful when it talks about Jesus dying to sin on our behalf. And so what it has, dying to sin has to be about bearing the eternal weight of sin. It has to be about the penalty for sin, the guilt of sin. Uh, for Jesus, sin no, has no claim on him. And the gospel that Paul has been unfolding is that whatever now, because of the cross, because of the resurrection, whatever is now true of Jesus is now true 
of us as Christians. In Christ, we died to the guilt of sin. It has no claim on us anymore. Now, it's worth stepping back for a second here and asking a really basic question, which is, what is sin? I I lead a college ministry, RUF at UConn, and uh, one of the great things is, you know, all kinds of people come to things like, you know, you have a Bible study and you never know who might come, and there's all kinds of levels of church background and Bible knowledge and I can remember a few years ago, there was a student in our ministry. She was amazing. She was immigrated from Columbia with her mom in high school, worked at McDonald's to make ends meet, uh, got a full ride to UConn, first-generation college student, chemical engineer, really bright. And she is in this Bible study that I'm leading, and she has very little Bible knowledge. You know, she had visited church a few times and so was exploring Christianity, uh, and those are the kinds of people that ask the best questions, right? Because we all, if we've been around the church a while, we kind of think like, yeah, I know everything and I have this all figured out. And she asks this very simple question. She goes, I don't even know what we were studying, but she goes, if sinning is so bad, why does it feel so good? And I was, I don't know even how I answered it. You know, I probably stumbled through something or we talked about, I don't, I don't remember exactly how that went, but Paul's been talking about that in Romans. Like, he's systematically been going through, and if you remember in chapter 1, he he unpacks this idea that sin begins with us exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Right? We stand guilty before God because we knew God. We knew he was a God of goodness and love, and yet we dismissed him. We turn the other way. And, all, and what Paul impacts is that all sinning we do is a response to that reality that we came under. Right? Sin, sin feels good. It seems right because it's a way to not feel or not see my alienation from God, even if just temporarily. Uh, in our house in Connecticut... Uh, We have a big family room, and just off the family room, there's this tiny little room. And I can remember moving in and thinking, like, oh, there's this tiny little room off the family room. Like, this will be a great reading nook, or, you know, we could use it as a little office. And it's always, you know, in our heads been like, oh, it'll be, once we had kids, it'll be like a little playroom. And the reality is it's our junk room, right? Like, it's just always going to be our junk room and we actually call it the room of requirement now uh, because of harry potter and uh, it's just this room and you know we let it go it just stuff piles up in there and every now and then we purge but thankfully the door closes right and so if we can get it's okay that we have junk if we can put it in that room and close the door right the, the junk is still there, but, you know, I don't have to see it. And at times, that's enough for me, okay? All sinning is a feeble attempt to deal with the reality that I'm alienated from God because I have dismissed him. And, you know, Paul takes it back to Genesis, and if you were to look through Genesis, you would just see this unfold, right? Uh, when Adam and Eve sin in Genesis chapter 3... When they turn from God, the first thing that starts happening is hiding and then blaming, right? 
If you go a chapter ahead with Cain and Abel, what we see happening is jealousy, anger, and murder. And it's all just a response to this alienation, the guilt of sin. Uh, Go ahead a little further in Genesis 11, and at the Tower of Babel, you'll see a whole society of people trying to make a name for themselves, to build an identity apart from God. You'll see them grasping for control in any way that they can. And what we need to see is these responses all make sense. They're a way of dealing with the reality of the guilt of sin, of our alienation from God, except that the gospel proclaims that in Christ we have now died to that reality. We've died to the guilt of sin. We don't live under it anymore. It has no hold on us anymore. Uh, Jesus bearing the penalty for sin now counts for us because we're in him. It's this beautiful idea of union with Christ where everything that's true of him becomes true of us. So in reality, we're no longer guilty. We do not stand guilty before the king. We do not, we are not alienated from him. And so to continue in sin then is now incongruous with reality for the Christian. That's what verse 2 is really saying. Uh, To continue in sin is like being released from prison, but continuing to dine in the prison cafeteria. Right? The only reason you dined there was because you were under judgment. It wouldn't make sense to go back. But... The reality is that Christians are still drawn to sin, right? So it's worth going a little deeper, specifically to the question of, well, how did we die to sin? And Paul says that we died to sin because we were baptized into Christ's death. And I want us to see, first of all, he's talking about actual baptism, like the kind of baptism that takes place up here in this church, you know, water baptism, And we often devalue baptism in the church today, right? Uh, Baptism is often thought of just like, it's, I don't know, a cute little ceremony, or uh, we're all often careful to say, like, it doesn't save you, and uh, and for that reason, it kind of gets counted as not that important. Uh, But it's a really big deal to Paul in this text. It's pretty much like the crux of his whole argument. And, you know... So where we're careful to say, you know, this is, baptism is not what saves you, uh, that's actually really to our detriment to think of it in those terms. And it's kind of like, think, think about a wedding ceremony, right? Imagine you're getting, it's your wedding day, you're getting ready to get married and someone walks up to you and they say, you know, the bare ceremony, that's not what makes you married, It's not really a super helpful thing to say, right? You know, and the truth is, there is so much value in the ceremony. Uh, Think about, there's just blessing in being able to look back and, you know, when marriage is challenging and to remember the vows, uh, to look at the rings you wear, uh, to remember the witnesses that were there, to remember the moment when you locked eyes with your spouse down the aisle. Uh, All these things have immense value in bringing a tangibility uh, to your reality. And baptism is similar. Uh, Baptism is the place 
where our union with Christ is dramatically set forth. And we're meant to look back on it. Many of us were baptized as infants, and so we don't remember our baptism, but we're meant to look back on it as we see other people get baptized. Uh, baptism is it's the tangible moment that we can look back on when we received Christ's credentials. We received his credentials as one who had died to sin. And as the water drips off, we're meant to feel our guilt dripping off. Uh, we're meant to feel our alienation from our creator dripping off. It makes us different. Uh, I'm a graduate of Wake Forest University in North Carolina. And when I, we stink at basketball now, but when I was there, we were good. And I, it was kind of my thing. Me and my friends, it was our thing. We went to all the games and followed the team. And I still follow the team, even though we're terrible. And a couple of years ago, my friends, uh, four friends and I decided we would meet up down in North Carolina for a game. We were going to go to the Wake Forest Duke basketball game. And I have a, one of these friends is a former track runner at, at our school. And so he has some connections in the athletic department. And he said, I'll, I'll, okay, we'll meet up there. We'll get a place to stay. I'll handle the tickets. And he handled the tickets, right? It was... They weren't tickets. They were passes, right? It's like you wear the lanyard, and it's got this big pass, and on the pass, it says the Moracle Society. Do you know what the Moracle Society is? I don't really either. Uh, it is just, just like, it's the high-end club for all the major donors to the athletic department. Uh, the coaches of all the teams go there. It's this, like, lounge and so before the game, we're eat, drinking fancy wine and eating fancy hors d'oeuvres. And our seats are on the floor of the court, right? And I despise Duke. So I'm, like, screaming at these players the whole first half. And then uh, at halftime, we go back. We're, we're going to go back to the Moracle Society and see what's there. And as we walk in, uh, there's a person holding a tray of champagne glasses. And so we each take a glass of champagne and... It turns out that there's an occasion there because there's a CEO of an investment group who's just donate, donated $5 million to the, to the basketball program at Wake Forest. And so we're toasting to him. And so there I am, right, like in my T-shirt, toasting the CEO and just talking about how great it is. He donated $5 million to the program. And uh, I start to get a little insecure as I look around because... I'm literally the only person in the room wearing a t-shirt, right? I have donated zero dollars to the program. And yet when I look down, I'm wearing this pass that says Moracle Society on it, right? They can't kick me out because someone has vouched that I belong in this company, right? Baptism is the VIP pass that you can show when you are weighed down by your sin, right? Uh, when you're weighed down by your lack of progress in the Christian life, when you're weighed down by your lack of patience with your kids, when you're weighed down by your lack of self-control, when you're weighed down by the temptation that won't go away, Right? The only way you can be transformed is by hearing this good news of the gospel, which proclaims a new transformative reality for those that are in Christ. 
for those that have been baptized into Christ Jesus. And it's, it's a huge transformation, right? It's so enormous that it takes time to grow into. Uh, I have a good friend, him and his wife have three biological children, and they've now adopted three children from all over the world as well. And I can remember, I got to be there at the airport when they welcomed home uh, their first adopted child from Uganda. He was a three-year-old who had been abandoned in a taxi cab in Uganda and had subsequently ended up in an orphanage and they heard about him and they were able to, through a long process, bring him home and adopt him. And it was such a great moment to see him brought home. And I can remember following up with that friend sometime later and kind of asking how it's going. How's it going? This little boy's name is Judah now. I said, how's it going with Judah? And he told me it's actually been pretty hard. There's been some hard things. One of the hard things is that they heard from Judah's teachers that Judah was hoarding food in his cubby at school. And they noticed that whenever, if they were in the kitchen, they were reaching up high, Judah would cover his head like this, thinking he was about to get hit. And do you see what's going on? Judah is no, in that moment, no longer under the reign of abuse. He's no longer under the reign of oppressive poverty. But it doesn't mean that he just automatically starts to live in that reality, right? And that's the story of every Christian. We were all under a deep condemnation. We had exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and everything fell apart. But through Christ, our reality changed. And when we're drawn to sin, we're like that little boy, Judah, hoarding food, because it's what he did in his old life to be secure, right? Now, thankfully, Judah is older now, and he no longer does those things. So beautiful. Do you think he stopped doing those things because his parents were just like, hey, stop it? No. They probably gave him a lot of hugs and kisses. They probably showed him their pantry and said, look at all this food we have. Like, you're never going to run out of food. This is a new reality for you. Okay, in the sacraments... In the gospel, Jesus says, you know, look at, the, look at this blood. Look at these wounds. Look at the empty tomb. You are different now. You've died to sin. You've died to sin. You've died to sin. You're accepted now. It means that the king delights in you. Now go live. Go be different. Go become a lover like him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we Pray that we would never stop hearing the good news. 
Uh, we pray that you would secure us in it. And that you would enable us to live in this glorious new reality. In communion with you, drawn into your love and forever different. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.